Would you stand with me now as we pick up in Genesis 37? I'm going to read uh, the first 11 verses this morning. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have had. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheep arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray together. Father, we again are grateful for our opportunity to gather in person as the gathered church. While we recognize there are still those joining us virtually this morning, does my heart good to look out and see so many faces, some of which I've not seen in quite some time. We thank you, God, for seeing us through this difficult period of time. We pray now as we enter this uh, fourth series in Genesis where we will explore the life of Joseph primarily, but really what you're doing, what you're showing us, how you're working both in his life and in the comparison of his life to those that have come before him and those that are around him. Would you, God, instruct us in your word now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Genesis 37 starts a new story. The story of the 11th son, 12th child, at least 12th name child with his uh, half-sister Dinah coming before him. But the 11th son of Jacob, whose name has now been changed to Israel. This is the longest section of Genesis dedicated to one person. It's longer than that of the stories that we have read of Adam or of Noah or of Abraham or even Joseph's father, Jacob. Joseph is the main focus of these 14 chapters, even though there will be a, a moments of a side where we'll be told stories of his brother or other things that are happening in his family. Make no mistake, he is the primary focus. 
And this focus on Joseph stands as unique when compared to the men who have come before him. If you have ever read through the 50 chapters of Genesis, when you get to Genesis 37, you begin to notice some things are different. There are just some things that literarily are different. As we'll see today, Joseph is going to dream two dreams that are unlike the dreams that the patriarchs had experienced before him. This reads somewhat differently. But even just in the character of the man in focus is a great difference. Joseph is intentionally portrayed as different than the men who Genesis had focused on previously. We go all the way back to the beginning and we are reminded that Adam chose in the garden disobedience over perfection. That Cain killed his brother out of jealousy. That Noah, after being protected by God during a worldwide flood, became a drunkard. That Abraham, called by God to go into the promised land, failed to trust the Lord in key moments, lying about his relationship with his wife twice and attempting to shortcut the Lord's promise of a descendant. Isaac followed in his father's footsteps and lying about his wife simply to save himself, just as Abraham had done. Jacob schemed, deceived, and even to this point in the story has allowed egregious sin to remain within his family. And then comes Joseph. And in the 14 chapters from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, not once is a recorded sin of Joseph in the text. Now that doesn't mean that Joseph didn't sin. The Bible is clear, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we should make note of the fact that in the telling of this story, there is no egregious sin in Joseph's life as there have been for generations in the story. We have often found encouragement in the fact that these were not perfect men. These were not perfect people, that they battled many of the same temptations and trials and struggles throughout their lives as they sought to be obedient to God. But then we turn to Joseph, who can seem to do no wrong. Moses goes out of his way. Moses is the one who is writing this for us as the biblical author. Goes out of his way to show us that Joseph avoided sin at nearly every turn. Again, it doesn't mean he is perfect, But he is supposed to be. We would read this wrong, these next 14 chapters, if we did not see him in a better light than his forebears. Because it is through God's work in Joseph's righteousness and his obedience that the people of God will ultimately be saved. Remember, Moses is telling the story from creation through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now their descendants ending in Egypt, then there will be a 400-year period between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And Moses is setting this story up for us so, so we can understand all of these years, millennia later, what God is doing. I've said it at the beginning of every one of these four sections, and I'll say it again. Joseph is the main focus, but he is not the main character. The Lord is the main actor. The Lord is the one who is working things according to his plan. 
So we need to see what the Lord is doing as Joseph is introduced in this final section. We are told that Joseph becomes the favored son of Israel. These first two verses really set the scene of transition from the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into the life of Joseph. We're told Joseph, uh, Jacob lived in the land of his father, sojourning in the land of Canaan. I used that last week to connect that back to uh, Israel's obedience to stay where God had him while his brother Esau journeyed outside of the promised land. Then we're given what is the 10th and final Toledoth, which is the generation, that's the Hebrew word for generation, and it's marked major transitions in the life of Genesis, in the life of the story of Genesis. These are the generations of Jacob. And anytime you see these are the generations of, it's going to give you not the person who is in focus, but who his descendant will be. So the generations of Abraham began to focus on Isaac. The generations of Isaac began to focus on Jacob. And now the generations of Jacob will begin to focus on who? Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. We're told he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Silpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So this is now 17 years after Joseph has been born in Mesopotamia, and we're told in a previous scripture that immediately after Joseph was born, that was when Jacob decided to return home. So we're 17 years on now. And he is doing the work that a teenage boy should be expected to do. He was helping his father pasture the flock. Now he was out with some of his brothers. We're told that he's with the brothers, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. This will be important here in a moment. But notice what Jacob does, or what Joseph does. Joseph returns from the field with his, from, his, from helping his brothers to his father and brings a bad report about them. So we're automatically set up with this contrast in the opening verses of this section that there is going to be conflict between the brothers Joseph's brothers and himself, the rest of the sons of Jacob, of Israel, and with Joseph. But Joseph is, clear, is clearly the main focus. If this is his story. You say, well, why in the whole account of Genesis is that important? Because if we go all the way back to the fall in Genesis 3, there's a meta-narrative, which is, a, which is a, a thread that runs throughout the whole story, right? That's what a meta-narrative is. There's a meta-narrative that takes place from the beginning there that kind of weaves itself, not just through Genesis, but weaves itself all the way through the Bible. And we find this introduced in Genesis 3, 15, where God looks at the serpent who had deceived the woman and deceived Adam and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this promise of God that one day one would come who would defeat the enemy, who would defeat the serpent, who would defeat Satan, who would overcome evil. And we're, we're given this little taste of the promise and we have to ask this question, well, how do we know who that son's going to be? As, the, as people, as humanity spreads out over the globe, how are we supposed to find this one guy? 
How are we supposed to find this one son of woman who will ultimately bruise the head of the serpent? Who's that supposed to be? Well, the story that Moses weaves for us is showing us how to follow that trail. And we see this trail happen in several places in Genesis. It happens in Genesis 4. We read, And Abel also brought of the first fruit, firstborn of his flock of their fattened portion. And the Lord had regarded for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very a- angry and his face fell. So this thread starts with the two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And we see that God is pleased with one and not with the other. But then what happens? Cain kills Abel. And then Adam and Eve have another son, Seth, at the end of Genesis chapter 4. And it is through Seth that the line of faith would then pass down. We get to Noah. And after Noah uh, is, builds his ark and the Lord rescues him from the flood and they begin to repopulate the earth. Noah speaks both blessing and curse on his sons and one of his son's descendants in Genesis 9. And we read, and he said, cursed be Canaan. Now Canaan was the son of Ham, a servant who was one of the sons of Noah. A, a servant of servants shall be he to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So there's three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. One of them is going to serve the other. The one is going to dwell in the tents of the other, but it's really clear which line we're to follow. We're to follow the line of Shem. So it goes from Abel to Seth to Shem. And we get to Genesis 17, Abraham's going to have two sons and God says to Abraham, and Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So Abraham asked God, would you bless Ishmael? Make him the receiver of the promise. Let the thread run through him. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So God makes clear in Genesis 17 that it's Isaac and not Ishmael. Then Jacob The son of Isaac deceives his way, according to the providential working of God, into that thread. But now Jacob has 12 sons. And these 12 sons are seen in the text as somewhat unique. These are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel, at least some of them will be, and then the two sons of Joseph. But so far in the text, we've not been given any indication about who the favored son is in the previous chapters. All we've actually seen of these children is negative. So far, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, Jacob's oldest three sons via his first wife, Leah, have all been introduced strictly by their sinful actions. Two of these sons, Simeon and Levi, committed genocide. Reuben slept with his father's wife. Now, Joseph is in the field with Four brothers, the sons of Jacob with his uh, wife, with, with two of his wives. These would be the sons Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These are sons five, six, seven, and eight. So sons one, two, and three have already been introduced by their sin. We're gonna skip son four until we get to two chapters from now. The sons five, six, seven, and eight are in the field and they do something and we're not told what they do, but Joseph, their younger brother, comes and brings a bad report about them intentionally setting up this comparison between all of the other children of Jacob 
and Joseph. Now, we need to resist an urge here. There is likely an urge within some of you, particularly if you grew up with younger siblings. See, I grew up as the youngest, meaning I never did anything wrong. If you want proof of that, just ask my sister. She'll tell you. But those of you that grew up with older siblings, you may, or with younger siblings, you may have a temptation here, right? And here's your temptation, to think that Joseph is just a little snitch, all right? You read this and you're like, man, this little goody two-shoes tattletale, right? that's reporting back on their brothers because we're not told what they did. We, you need to resist that urge, okay? Because while we may wanna project that upon the text based on our own life experiences, that is not the purpose of this text at all. And it will become abundantly clear how Moses paints the brothers, how he's already revealed the character of Joseph's brothers to us in previous chapters and how he will continue to reveal uh, the Joseph's brother's character to us in later chapters, it's very clear that whatever these boys did, they shouldn't have done. It. And Joseph was right in coming back to his father. But the point is to show us the favored position of Joseph over the rest of his brothers. And then we're told that at the beginning of verse three. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. So we're told two things here. We're given a fact and then we're told why it's a fact that Israel loved Joseph the most. He has 12 sons and he loves Joseph the most. Then we're told that it's because he was the son of his old age. Now the son of his old age typically means he's his youngest son, but Joseph is not his youngest son. Benjamin is his youngest son. But Benjamin, while he is certainly doted on later, he is kind of the apple of his father's eye and in some cases in the life of Jacob, uh, Benjamin is a little bittersweet in the fact that in his birth also meant his mother's death, the favored wife of Jacob dying when Benjamin was born. And so Joseph is considered to be the favored son. Joseph is considered to be the son of his old age and Jacob prefers him. He loves him, we're told in the text, more than his other sons. Now, just because Jacob does this and it plays an important part in the story doesn't mean he's right in doing it. We've not seen Jacob do very much right at all in the previous chapters. There were some things Jacob got right, and then there were a lot of things Jacob got wrong. And one of the things Jacob probably should have known not to do was to play favorites. He came from a household where favorites were played by the parents. We're told in Genesis 25 that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you had Isaac who loves Jacob's brother Esau, and you have Rebekah who loves Jacob and these twins are kind of always at each other and this favoritism from parents plays a large role in Jacob's deception and ultimately having to flee from the promised land. So just because Jacob favors Joseph and we're supposed to see Joseph in a favorable light as we continue to read uh, in Genesis does not mean that playing favorites is a good thing. Just an aside there, okay? It doesn't mean Jacob's right in doing what he does but the Lord is using that here to instruct us. 
So through contrast with his brother and the favoritism of his father, Joseph is introduced as the final focal point in the story of Genesis. This unique character whose flaws, I'm sure he had flaws, but his flaws are not going to be mentioned to us. We're just going to see this favored son through in good times and in bad, be obedient to the way the Lord would have him to live. Number two, the second section is Joseph's coat and dreams foretell his royal future. So pick up there in the middle of verse three. And he made, him, he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his, his other sons. And he not only, he doesn't keep this, into his, he didn't keep this to himself, right? He demonstrates it. How does he demonstrate it? He demonstrates it by giving him a coat that his other, co- his other brothers doesn't have. Now, this is obviously a very popular story uh, in scripture. Many people even outside the church know of this story. You can go watch this story unfold, at least a version of it unfold on Broadway, okay? That, that, that Joseph, the favored son of Israel, is given this right, technicolor dream coat. Now, what if I told you that it may not have actually been a coat of like many colors. That, 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 is a, that is a fine and perfectly acceptable translation of that text. And it probably did have varied colors to it, but that wasn't what actually made the coat special. This term is actually only used twice in the Bible. It's used uh, in, I believe it's first, Samuel, first or second Samuel. It's used in another place to describe another coat, another royal coat. And there it's translated as that the coat, it had long sleeves. And you say, what's the difference between having short sleeves and long sleeves? Well, well short sleeves, a, a, a coat that, that wouldn't have had long sleeves, that would have had short sleeves or no sleeves at all, would have been the kind of cloak that a shepherd would have worn, a, a, a hard worker, somebody working in the field. The coat that Joseph is given, whether it has a whole lot of colors, what the design looked like, right? It, here's what's important of it. It was a royal coat. It was not the coat of a working person. It was the coat of a royal person. It was the coat of somebody who was going to rule. It was the coat of someone who would be in authority. The 11th son of Jacob. So picture this, right? Make sure we're understanding this. The 11th son of Jacob is given a coat that symbolizes not only his father's preference for him, but symbolizes his, at, young, at a young age, his possible authority over them because they are going to work in the field. He is going to have this coat of many colors with his long sleeves ruling over them. And then he has two, we're told that his brothers grow jealous. We're told several times in the text, his brothers grow jealous right? They're unable to, they hate him. They're unable to speak peacefully to him. So this conflict is building. This conflict is going to continue to build when we get into next week. And most of you likely know the story of what's going to happen next week, um, where his brothers ultimately uh, pretend that he's dead and sell him into slavery. But we, we see that building here in the text. And then Jacob, uh, Joseph's going to have two dreams, they're, they really are very similar. One, ultimately, the second is more clear than the first, but let's look at the first. Now, verse five, now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. 
And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So we've already been told that they hate him. We, we were told previously that they hated him. They, they disliked him because he had brought a false report. They disliked him because his father favored him. Now they've disliked him because he's brought this dream to them. This, this young favored dreamer has come to his older brothers and said, hey, listen to my dream. We're all out, out working in the field. And you kind of hear a little bit of a chuckle, right? It's intentional that this is right after the, 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 the royal coat, okay? Because the royal coat's not working out in the field. So he says, we're all out working in the field. And you can already kind of sense the skepticism on their part. And we're binding sheaves together. And my sheaf kind of rises up in the middle. So my binding of the wheat rises up and your bindings of the wheat all kind of gather around it and fall down to it. And the brothers give them a little credit here, rightly interpret what Joseph's dream means. And they say, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they begin to ask questions of Joseph, this younger brother, are you really telling us that, that your royalty, that this coat has gone to your head? That dad's love for you has gone to your head? Do you really think that this dream is going to be a reality? Now it's important for us to remember what we have already seen to be true in Genesis. And that is God has promised that royalty would come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 17, verse 6, we read, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. This is God talking to Abraham. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Now, we've already seen some kings come from Abraham. Some princes and kings came from Ishmael. They came from Esau, but these were kings of other nations. Now, it's in the line of faith. Now, there's one in the line of faith whom, whom that royalty may sit upon. So God's promised that to Abraham. God also promises this to Jacob in Genesis 35. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. Same promise that God makes to Abraham, he makes to Jacob. So Jacob knows. And it's going to be important when we read this next dream. But maybe he didn't tell his brothers. Maybe he didn't tell his sons. Maybe the the sons of Jacob, the brothers of Joseph, are unaware of this promise. We're not sure, but they certainly wouldn't think it would belong to this upstart, teenage, favored apple of the father's eye who can seem to do no wrong. But then there's another dream, and this dream is more clear, and we don't only get the brother's reaction, we also get his father's. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him and his father kept the saying in mind. Now, just compare the dreams for a moment and see if you can find the, the two big differences, all right? One Joseph has a sheaf in the field. It rises upright. 
His brothers have sheaves in the field that all kind of bow down to it. That's dream one. Dream two, Joseph is now in the middle. It's not a sheaf. It's not a creation of Joseph. It's not something Joseph has made. It's not something that represents Joseph. It's Joseph himself. And it's not just sheaves that are around him. It's not just the 11 stars, which represent the brother, but it is also the sun and the moon, which represent his father and mother. So you notice the difference. It's not a sheaf in the middle. It's not an inanimate object in the middle like it is in the first dream. It's now Joseph. It's very clear that that first dream, that center sheaf, didn't represent a descendant of Joseph. It represented Joseph himself, that Joseph himself is now in the middle. And it's not only his brothers who would bow down to him, but mother and father. And so he tells his brothers this, and they obviously have the same reaction that his uh, that they had to the previous dream. But he also tells his father, and notice that his father rebukes him, even though he's his favorite son, he rebukes him, at least initially. And he says, shall I and your mother and brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Now, at this point in the story, Jacob's mother, or Joseph's mother is dead. She died giving birth to Benjamin. So likely here, the reference to mother is Leah, the first wife of Jacob. So should, should Jacob and Leah and his 11 brothers, 10 of whom are older than him, one of whom is younger than him, show all of them represented here in the sun and the moon and the stars, these heavenly bodies bowing down towards, Jacob, towards Joseph? Shall they all bow to him, he asks? And then we're given this. We're given kind of a break in between Jacob's thoughts. Jacob asks a question. We're told something about his brothers. Then we're told something again about Jacob. And his brothers were jealous of him. So once again, the brothers have, a, uh, have an inappropriate, a sinful reaction to their brother. They've hated him. They've been unable to speak peacefully towards him. And now they're jealous of him. But Jacob, notice what Jacob does. But his father kept the saying in mind. You see, Jacob's initial reaction is to rebuke and to question. And it's very clear that he rebukes him. It, the word's there. He rebuked him. And then it's very clear that he questions him. But after being reminded of the brother's response, we see a different response out of Jacob, that he kept these sayings in mind. Why does he keep these sayings in mind? Because he knew the promise of God. And let's remember who Jacob is. Jacob is not the oldest son of Isaac. Right? Esau is the oldest son of Isaac. Esau was the one who deserve the birthright and the blessing. But Jacob is the one who received the birthright and the blessing. So if there's anyone who should be able to look at this and say, wait a second, maybe God is doing something in this fourth generation differently than he had in the previous ones, it should be Jacob. Because Jacob didn't deserve the position that he received from the Lord. So who is to say that the Lord couldn't use the 11th son of Israel as the one who would become royalty. I find it interesting that we, we read at the, end of this, at the end of this text, and his father kept the saying in mind. It's, as, it's just as if Jacob is going to ponder on it. And you know, we see that in one other place in the scriptures. We, we see that in the New Testament. 
the end of the story of the nativity, after an angel has appeared to Mary and has told her that she will conceive even though she is a virgin, after the Holy Spirit comes upon her and she conceives the Son of God, after she is trekked with her husband from Galilee to Bethlehem and she gives birth there uh, in a stable and the shepherds who had had, an, had angels appear to them come and bow down and worship the Son of God, worship Jesus, we're told but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The same response that we have from Mary at the end of the nativity story is the same response that we have from Jacob. I gotta, you have to imagine that in both of these situations, neither one of them fully know what is to come. Jacob certainly doesn't know what his sons are about to do to his favored son. He certainly doesn't know what the decades of, uh, in the future have for Joseph in Egypt. Mary, even though the angel had come to her and had told her of, what, uh, of, of the future of her son, Mary didn't know everything that there was to know. She couldn't know everything that there was to know that Jesus would do and what Jesus would suffer for his people. And yet both of them treasure these things. They ponder these things. Actually, the translation of the Hebrew text in Genesis into the Greek Old Testament uses the same exact words that Luke uses to describe Mary's response. They ponder them. They just kind of hide these thoughts away, which provides a great transition to us into our point of application. Now, I recognize this is long, but watch what's happening here. Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, was destined to rule over and save his family, foreshadowing Jesus, the only son of God, who was destined to rule over and save the world. As we transition into this final section of Genesis, Joseph stands as unique. It's how I began the sermon today, that he is not like, in the text, he's not like Adam, he's not like Noah, He's not like Abraham. He's not like Isaac. He's not like Jacob. He is a new and better Abraham, Noah, Adam, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph is intentionally portrayed to us by the biblical author as unique, not as sinless, but not recording his sin, not as a worldly savior, but as the savior of his people. This is why I've called this final section origins, the people. It's not origins the Joseph. It's about the people. It's about what God is going to do through the obedience of this one person to redeem an entire people for himself, pointing us towards Jesus, who is the true and better Joseph, who doesn't simply rule over his parents, or rule over his brothers, or rule over Egypt, but rules over the entire creation and offers salvation to the peoples of the world. That as we read this story of Joseph, week in and week out, we will see direct connections between the temporal life of Joseph and the salvific life of Jesus. Listen to what the angel said to Mary in Luke 1. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. 
I hate to give the story away to you if you've never read all of Genesis, but do you know how Genesis ends? Joseph dies. He dies. He actually gives instructions of what to do with his bones one day when his descendants return to the promised land. Because while Joseph serves as a better example of obedience to God than all of the other men who have come before him in Genesis, Joseph was still not perfect. Joseph was still unable to save the world. He was able to save a family. He was able to save a people, but he was unable to permanently save the world. But Jesus, the true and better Joseph, is able to do that and has accomplished that for you in your place. Because listen, in this story, we're not Joseph. In this story, we're his brothers. Me and you, we are his brothers. Looking through the lens of our sin and questioning how God is at work. But we bow down as the sheaves bow down in the first dream and as the stars and sun and the moon bow down in the second, we bow down to the one who is the permanent Joseph, who is the permanent son of God, righteous sacrifice in our place, king of kings and Lord of lords of whom his kingdom, there will be no end. We bow down to him and in bowing down to him, his offer of free salvation is extended to us. So I ask you today, have you bowed down to him? Have you recognized that you're not at the center of the story, but Jesus is? This isn't, this world isn't about you. It's about him and his glory. Have you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? If you have not, would you do that today? Repent and believe, turn towards him, trusting that he has made a way for you to be right with God for the Christians in the room, for the so many who are gathered, we recognize this truth today that we didn't save ourselves, but Jesus Christ has saved us and he rules and reigns in our lives and in our world today. And we long for his return to where his kingdom will be established forever. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that in this beginning stages of the story of Joseph, we so clearly see Jesus. We so clearly see the work and the plan of God from ancient of days past, this thread of redemption leading to the one who would crush the serpent's head in our place. For any who does not have faith in that today, would they believe that and be saved, we pray, calling on the name of the Lord so that they too may bow down and worship the one who is at the true center of all things in this world. Thank you, God, that in Christ we find hope and salvation, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.